please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Um, We're so glad to have you this morning. Um, If you do not have a copy of God's Word, you are welcome to pick, um, pick one of them up from the back table. And if you don't have one at home, please take that with you as our gift. We are going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 48. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) All right, well, it's a joy to be with you this morning. I am Jake Ledette, one of the pastors here, and uh, yeah, just... Here we are again in Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, As I was praying just this morning before I walked over for the second time, I think, um, uh, one of the things I was thinking about was just how, as Christians, we just do very ordinary things. Like we get together and we hear from God's word, we sing together, um, and then in that ordinary, uh, we, we, we do ordinary things and we value these ordinary things because we believe God does miraculous things in the midst of that. Uh, that as we just get up, you know, get ourselves ready and come here, get our families ready and come here and hang out, check kids in and sit and sing and hear and read and consider God's word, we believe, those are, those are ordinary, uh, but that God in that opens blind eyes. It does the miraculous work of, of healing there's the miraculous work of revealing sin that you and I have in our lives right now that we're unaware of and helps us come to understand and consider his grace and mercy in light of uh, that real sin in our lives, that he encourages us, that he reminds us of the victory that's his, and uh, because it's his, it's, it's ours as well. 
Um, and so I just wanted to encourage you. That. Again, that's one of the reasons we, we value the Sunday gathering and we commit to it and we uh, desire to uh, just continue week in and week out to do this ordinary thing and ask the Lord to continue to do uh, what only he can do. And so along those lines, we actually have uh, a fellow church, you know, as, as a church, we believe in church planning. Um, and I just want to say a couple, one thing, one, just thank you for your generosity. Because as a church, as young as we are, just two years old, because of your generosity, we get to give financially to the work of church planning near and far. And that's God's kindness in and through you. Um, And one of those churches actually had their soft launch. That's church planning terminology that doesn't mean a whole lot, but it's a thing that happens. Uh, And uh, last week, and so they're gathering again this Sunday night. It's uh, Beacon Church. Uh, Yeah, praise God. And... uh, they're gathering again tonight uh, in Hearst. That's where they're planting. Uh, I think they're, ga- where they're gathering at Shady Oaks Baptist Church at 4 p.m. tonight. And so I just wanted to take a moment to pray for them and pray for the work God is doing there. And, and I always say those things uh, just because the Lord might be stirring some of you uh, to be a part of what he's doing at some of the churches that we're supporting, whether it's one that is in Hearst or whether it's one uh, that is in the Middle East. We always want to just continue to be laying these things before you, uh, trusting that God will lead and stir and guide. Um, and we want to always be generous with money, with resources, with people, and we just want to be generous with ourselves. What is God calling us to do with this little bit of time that we have to steward uh, on this earth? And so uh, that's Beacon Church. They're gathering tonight. Um, at 4 p.m., Shady Oaks Baptist Church. Uh, Would you just join me in in praying for this new work of the Lord? Father, we thank you for this new church. We thank you that you uh, are continuing to spread your gospel. You're continuing to spread it amongst people that um, have heard it and where it's familiar, and you're continuing to reach and spread it to places where it's been unheard. Uh, And Spirit, we just trust you and ask you to continue to help us be a part of that work, wisely stewarding the the time and the resources you've given us. And then we pray for Beacon Church. Uh, I thank you for Spencer and Jamie. Uh, I pray that you would bless them. Pray that you would bless them tonight as they uh, gather. Um, I pray that you would um, work in them just a thankfulness for all that you're doing uh, and that they would continue to do this work out of the love that you've greatly shown them. And I pray for the core team that's come together there, that you would help them see their part in this, that they, uh, much more than just following a person, they are following you. Um, and they get to be a part of what you're doing in this new church and in uh, Hearst. And so would you give them a vision for that? Would you give them passion and energy and grace and encouragement for one another? And then I just pray that the people of Hearst would be forever changed because of this new work. Uh, that you're doing. Uh, And then as they just commit to those same ordinary things week in and week out, of gathering together, of being in community, of stirring one another on, of sharing the gospel with those that don't know you, that you would just do a mighty work. uh, And I pray that you would do the same here in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, um, Lord willing, we actually might finish chapter five this morning. Um, And so we have spent 13 weeks in Matthew chapter 5. Not that anybody's counting. Um, And uh, it's it's been a joy. And even as I think back on those weeks, it's kind of overwhelming how much Jesus says in so few words. 
Um, it's just, it's really incredible. And as we, the, the end of chapter five really kind of concludes a section of the sermon as he moves on to another section. So I thought it'd be um, appropriate to do a bit of a recap. If you remember in chapter four of Matthew, Jesus simply starts his earthly ministry. And the vision statement for that earthly ministry is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And really that call that Jesus makes out that goes out from Jesus is uh, he's preaching the sermon on the mount as part of that call. He's preaching to the crowds that have gathered around him who he has said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The sermon on the mount is part of that ministry that he has, that he's calling people to repentance. Um, And so we spent several weeks, uh, obviously in the Beatitudes and, and chapter five, verses two through 12 that serve as really the foundational introduction to the entirety of the sermon. There's no way to get to any part of the sermon without going through the Beatitudes. And then verses 13 through 16 are that statement that says that those that are poor in spirit, those that are mourning their sin and meek before God and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, the persecuted ones, these kinds of people are the people that are salt and light to the communities that they are in. And then we come to the beginning of the section we're in, in verses 17 through 20, uh, what we'll be wrapping up today, where Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And then he calls all of us to this greater righteousness. But because he's just a masterful teacher, he doesn't leave us hanging about what that looks like. He gives us these six different examples of what it looks like for this greater righteousness to actually be lived out in our life and what it means that he's come to uh, fulfill the law, not uh, abolish it. And um, before we get to the specific examples uh, that he has for us this morning, obviously we did uh, anger and lust and divorce, and we have three more examples that we'll cover all today. Uh, but before we even get there, I thought as we think about this greater righteousness, as we think about what Jesus has called us to, I think it'd actually be helpful to start with the last verse uh, from our passage this morning. It's one of his more perplexing statements. It's one of those statements we just try to kind of explain away or figure out or like, I'm not sure exactly what this means, uh, but it'd be really helpful to understand what it does mean. In Matthew 5, 48, if you see there, it just says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so obviously uh, a word that's doing a lot of, carrying a lot of weight there is this word perfect, which in the Greek is teleos. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but neither are you, so it doesn't really matter. Um, but uh, uh, in this word teleos could be translated mature, could be translated full, could be translated whole. Uh, words like that, it's, it's translated like that. In other words, along with perfect uh, in the New Testament. Uh, but the reality is that Jesus is calling us to be whole and aligned. And by perfect, he's meaning our outward actions are aligned with our inward actions. And if you just look at the thrust of a sermon of what he's doing, that's the whole thing he's doing. Is he saying, hey, we, we don't need to be hypocrites. We don't need to be just focusing on our outward actions. The reality is when we focus on our outward actions, we don't really want to obey the law. We don't, when we're just focusing on what to do, when we're just trying to find this line, we don't really want to obey. And so we're divided. Being whole means we're not just trying to find some obedience line. It means we actually desire to be faithful to God, and that shows in our outward actions, even when we fail. 
And that's what Jesus is calling us to. And really, even again, this is in the context of that call to repentance. It's even that when we fail, we get the opportunity to confess and repent of sinful anger, of lust, of ways we demean marriage, of dishonesty and pride and an unwillingness to love. We get to confess all of those things that we're, and, and in doing that, we're actually living out this greater righteousness when we confess those things. And when we confess those things, we're aligning our inward life with our outward life. We're saying, no, there is a disconnect here and I see it and I confess it and I lay it before God. And in doing that, uh, we are becoming uh, more and more like this God who is completely aligned inwardly and outwardly. He is, there is no gap there. Uh, I love how R.T. France kind of describes the common pattern he sees here in this passages and in verse 48. He says this, He says, it is concerned not so much with the negative goal of the avoidance of specific sins, but with the far more demanding positive goal of discovering and following what is really the will of God for his people. It substitutes for what is, in principle, 100% achievable righteousness, the avoidance of breaking a definable set of regulations, with a totally open-ended ideal, being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect which will always remain beyond the grasp of the most committed disciple. Such a radically searching reading of the will of God in light of the Old Testament law establishes a righteousness of the kingdom of heaven, which is in a different ling altogether from the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is what Jesus is showing us here. And this is that greater righteousness that he is calling us to. And it's so easy to think, well, it's not always easy, but it's easier Oh, I'm not supposed to do this thing. Okay, I'm not going to do that thing. Okay, what does God want from me here? What is most faithful? What does it look like to live a faithful life before God in the circumstances that he's called me to? Uh, the, the, we, we don't like this because it's kind of eternal. <laughs> it's kind of unending. And especially for those of us that have like a, a stronger conscience and a harder conscience and have to know if we're doing right, like we, we just like, okay, just what are the rules I need to follow and I need to don't follow? And Jesus is saying, I want you to pursue God in this situation. I want you to desire to be faithful to him, not just to desire to keep this rule uh, that has been laid before you. And again, he showed us three examples of this in anger and lust and divorce. And we'll see uh, him address, Jesus address oaths retaliation, and loving our enemies. And so this passage that we're dealing with today, uh, it it gives us all kinds of phrases that have just made it into like our pop culture and popular vernacular and how people talk today, like go the extra mile. You hear that all the time from Christians and non-Christians, let your yes be a yes and no a no, a common one. Probably the the most common and perhaps the most timely uh, is turn the other cheek. and so, surely, some, raise your hand if you thought of Will Smith and Chris Rock. During, yes, okay. So maybe just a few. I thought there would be more hands. I'm not going to lie. Um, that have, don't worry. There's no more. I don't have any jokes about it or anything. I didn't have time to make them. So maybe some of you all are disappointed in that. But, you know. Uh, but that is one of the probably more common statements that you just hear in our culture is uh, from this passage, at least, is to turn the other cheek. And I always love the opportunity when we get to see these statements and place them within the context of what God is saying and, okay, what does Jesus actually mean when he says these things uh, more than just how they're used uh, in our culture. 
Um, and so that's going to be the structure of our time. We're just going to simply walk through these three different examples uh, that Jesus gives us and see what this greater righteousness that he's called us to uh, in them really is. And so example one is oaths, Matthew 5, 33. It says, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And so if you've been here, if you've been keeping track, you've seen this cadence and Jesus is entering into it again. You've heard it said this. He's quoting a common Old Testament statement we see in Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And really what Leviticus is saying is really the heart of the third commandment in Deuteronomy 5, verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And, and I really think that commandment is less about what we say when we stuff, I'm sorry, it's probably me, uh, less about what we say when we stub our toe and more about using God's name in vain when we make these kinds of commitments and vows, although we should also not use God's name in vain when we stub our toes. Um, and really, some of this is probably lost on us a bit as we have formal contracts, we have lawyers, we have some of you here, uh, and those are the ways that we make agreements today and have deals and make commitments. But in Jesus' time and ancient times, you know, the most common commitment was a vow or an oath that you would make. So this was a really big deal to them. But don't worry, Jesus is going to bring this home to all of us and make us feel it. Uh, if you go on in verse 34, he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. So you've heard it said this, I'm saying to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And so what was happening here is Jews in Jesus' day were making vows, and they were making vows on things less than God and less than God's name, so that they would feel less compelled to follow through with those very vows. Uh, that if they you know, made a vow by God's name, then that was really serious, and they'd probably feel a little more compelled to follow it to the T. If it wasn't by God's name, then you know, they could mostly fulfill it, kind of fulfill it. It just wasn't as big a deal if they didn't fulfill it. And to be honest with you, we're all familiar with this logic. I mean, you just go to any elementary school playground and you hear a lot of little Pharisees swearing by all sorts of things. Um, and the, the most serious of which, obviously, is our mother's grave. Like, I swear on my mother's grave that this is true. And it's the same kind of logic. It's, it's, we, we grow up with this kind of logic. Uh, I don't, if you've missed it, I don't know how, but this is almost, it seems like a part of development uh, in children. Is, uh, and you feel like the... The seriousness they have, obviously the swears get ramped up in volume and seriousness. It's like, I swear to, I swear on everything. To, I and then again, the, the trump card, I swear on my mother's grave, which I looked up the etymology and there wasn't much there. Uh, but I was just like, where, how did we start doing that? And uh, why? And what, I mean, what is even the mother's, but um, it was just a common thing. And I think that it has something to teach us, even if we think about the playground as somewhat of a case study, because one, Kids are swearing, they're having to swear because partly they're talking to someone that they have got it wrong enough to this person in front of them just does not believe them. Um, and so they're having to pull out all the stops to get this person uh, to believe them. And here's the other reason that happens. Kids have an uncanny ability to be completely confident in the wrong answer. 
Uh, they, they just really do. It really, I mean, if you're a kid, there's something you got to learn, something. But again, I think this is part of development of them figuring out, okay, what does it mean to have a right amount of confidence about something? What does it mean to have humility here? And to be honest with you, it's hard. It's hard to be a kid. So we should give them grace even in this. Uh, but it is a, a reality. And the other thing is they're just a bunch of liars. Um, and so that's why, I mean, some of them are swearing by their mother's grave, knowing they are lying. It's just a reality. Some are tempted more than others, but kids, you know, it's true. You, we've all been there. I've been there too. We were all kids at one point, believe it or not. Uh, and it's a thing. Um, and although this may be more vocal, more noticeable on elementary school playgrounds, we can stop picking on kids because Jesus wants us to see, obviously, how this impacts you and me. The, the reality is oaths and vows do more to expose how dishonest we are. Uh, that's what they expose, the fact that we need them. That's what it exposes in kids. That's what it exposes in life. That's one of the reasons, I mean, they are needed. That's what we need formal contracts. We need, we need lawyers. We, we do need those things because we are a dishonest people. Um, and we need protection from ourselves and from others. And so that's what they expose. The Pharisees thought it covered up their dishonesty. They thought they were actually living out honestly when it was actually exposing how dishonest they really were that they needed to do any of that. And I think even if we think about that uh, verse 48 again, and we were to use that here, we we are to be honest as our heavenly father is honest. And man, that is a gap. That is something to consider. And something for us, what does it look like? Where, Where do we struggle in our lives with dishonesty? Where do we struggle to, um, yeah, just walk out in an honest way? I think some common ways when we're presenting ourselves uh, to people that are in authority over us, maybe even in a crowd that we desire to be in or maybe formally at work, but we're presenting ourselves, we're, we're, we're tempted to bend the truth, to impress, or tempted to bend the truth, to not disappoint, to make something that we did not look as bad as it really was. Um, and, and I think, I don't mean in the sense of even if we're thinking about work, we need to tell our boss all of our worst sins. That's not a good idea, most likely. Um, but are we the one that throws other employees under the bus? Or are we the one that don't do that? Or are we the ones that exaggerate results to make ourselves look a particular way? Uh, are we the one that tries to, again, demean or skew or, or cloud over uh, mistakes and failings that we've actually had um, in work or, again, even in relationships? Uh, I think presenting ourselves in a favorable light to those in authority of us is a common way that we struggle with honesty. Another way is simply hiding sin, that, that we know we have clear sin that we're walking in, uh, that we're just hiding, that we're presenting ourselves in one way to, to everybody that, as someone that does not struggle with this and we know all along we struggle significantly with this, whatever it is. Um, and is that a struggle uh, of ours? When, when you're walking in that kind of constant hypocrisy, typically you're feeling the heavy hand of the Lord pressing upon you, but you're trying to live as if that's not happening. You're trying to live as if that weight isn't true. You're really living the uh, verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32. Where David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And what God is calling us to is the rest of that passage in verse 5. 
I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And again, I think so often we, um, you think, man, I have confessed that. Why do I still feel this heavy weight? Because, brothers and sisters, what we haven't confessed to those closest to us, I don't think we've truly confessed. I think there's something in our pride and our arrogance that doesn't want to look like that. We're okay looking like that before God, but not before the people that he's called to be in our lives, to love us, to care for us. Um, And there's just a reality there. There's something that's just holding on. Again, not that we need to confess our sins to everybody. That'd be unwise. Uh, But to those that are closest to you, to your spouse, to your good friends, are you living that kind of hypocritical life? That's uh, an area where we struggle to be honest. I think of parenting. Parenting, how we discipline our kids, the promises we make to them that go unkept. I was writing this, and I was like, oh, goodness, I need to plan uh, time with my son because I told him I was going to do that, and I still haven't done that. And so I literally had to stop working on the sermon and like, okay, I've got to figure out a date to, to make this happen. But how often are we comfortable lying to our kids? And they're, they're gracious, or they forgive us, or life goes on, uh, but promises that we've made that we have not kept, or consequences that we leave unfollowed through with. Man, it's it's one of the hardest, it's one of the most important things to do as a parent, and one of the hardest things to do as a parent is to mean what you say and say what you mean. Like we give a consequence, and we just don't do it because it's hard, tired, and then we're probably just going to, it's probably not even going to work, so why are we going to do it? But again, it's it's what we're, are we being honest? Are we being honest even to our kids? Um, And sometimes we're just even afraid about their reaction. We don't want to follow through with the consequence because we're afraid they're not going to like it. I thought one of the more helpful things Julie Lowe said at the parenting conference was, our kids do not have to agree with our parenting. Like, like we can, they, it's okay if they don't agree. It's, it's nice if they agree. It's nice if we're on the same page, and even if it's hard, we're working through it. But if they don't, it's still okay, and we still get to follow through with it. So often we don't follow through with things because we're, we're tiptoeing around our kids' reactions, and that's not a good thing that, for them to learn that people will tiptoe around them, uh, that, that, that will go bad. So, um, again, parenting is just another one of those temptations where we're tempted to not walk out in honesty and mean what we say and say what we mean. And I think a, a, another common struggle is just saying no. Do you struggle to say no because you don't want to disappoint people? You'd really prefer to say no. If you were being honest, you would say no but you don't want to disappoint people, so you just don't say no. Um, and you just overcommit. And you end, up being, you end up saying no's that you don't mean to say because you didn't want to disappoint this person in front of you. And sometimes we take that out on those around us or spouses or those that are closest to us because we're overcommitted and stressed out, uh, but uh, we overcommit. Um, we, often we even start to resent the very things we've committed to uh, because we have overcommitted ourselves. And, and obviously, we're called uh, to sacrifice. And obviously, we're called to say yes to things that mean a sacrifice of our personal comfort. And there's a tension there that as Christians, we have to be willing uh, to balance and, and navigate. But we need to be mindful of our own hearts. And the, our, our unwillingness to say no um, is not even necessarily, oh, I'm just wanting to give up comfort. It's, I mean, I, I, don't wanna, I don't want this person to be disappointed in me. Um, and again, so we need to be live honestly there. And there's many other examples, but the Pharisees believed that they were obeying God's word by making vows on lesser things. But this is how Jesus replied with the reality that everything is God's. 
Heaven is his, earth is his, Jerusalem is his, even our very lives and our bodies and the hair on our head are his. And so what Jesus is, is pointing us to and them to is actually any promise we make, any commitment we make is always done in relationship to the God of the universe. We may, just think, we may think we're just talking to our boss. We may just think we are overcommitting or hiding sin from our friends or making a deal between people, but there's nowhere you can go outside of God's reign. The reality is instead of not using God's name and oaths and vows, it's more accurate to say we are always swearing by God's name. But that, that is how we should live, that every commitment we make is in light of who God is. And this is why Jesus says in verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He's saying don't convince people of your honesty, live an honest life. Kids, kids that struggle with swearing by their mother's grave, don't try to convince people. Try to live an honest life. Brothers and sisters, and here, people struggle to trust us because in many ways they should. Because we, we are not trustworthy at times. Um, we, we should live honest lives. Uh, there's nothing more we can do to actually gain people's trust. A life of honesty will produce more believability than anything else you can do. And here's the thing. This doesn't mean that you're always right. This doesn't mean that like sometimes you're going to commit to something and you're not going to follow through. You're going to think you're, even as adults, you're going to think you're absolutely right when you're actually wrong. I remember I was at a party one time with a buddy and he had just read this biography. And so he was talking about this guy's name and he was like, yeah, I just read this biography on, on Steve Jobs. And I was like, it's Steve Jobs. He's like, dude, I just read the biography. I was like, okay, it's Steve Jobs. I don't, you know. I don't know what you want to say, but it's, it's Steve Jobs. And we just kind of went on with the conversation, and he went, obviously, somewhere and looked it up, and he came back. He's like, hey, you're right. Uh, it's, it's Steve Jobs. I was like, okay, I knew I was right. Um, but uh, I don't know why I'm giving that example, actually. Just, um, but the, the reality is, well, in this guy's example, he was humble. He was like, yeah, I was wrong there. Um, we're going to get things wrong. Uh, we're going to overcommit and not... Uh, be able to follow through on those commitments. But walking honestly is even how we respond to those things, even how we respond to when we are wrong and when we do overcommit. That's what living honestly means. And I would say this, if you are overwhelmed with a life of dishonesty, like you're, you're hiding in sin, you feel like you've dug a hole of dishonesty, those are some of the hardest holes to dig out of, um, I, I, I think about blind Bartimaeus, who couldn't see, couldn't see anything. And sometimes we can't see a way out of the holes we've dug ourselves in. But what did blind Bartimaeus do? He cried out, son of David, have mercy on me. And so may, you may not see a way out, but you can cry out to Jesus. Jesus, have mercy on me. And that's the beginning. That's the beginning of a new road. So Jesus talks about living an honest life with the oaths, and vows we make, and then he goes on to retaliation in verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. 
and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Here's what Jesus is referencing in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, 24. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Leviticus 24, 20. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury has given a person shall be given to him. Deuteronomy 19, 21. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And so as laws today, these same laws were used to discourage people from evil, violent actions. I am less likely to cut off your hand if my hand is next. And they're also used to restrain um, revenge. If you cut off my hand, I am going to be upset. Uh, But all I am liable to in this law is your hand as well. So they were meant to restrain evil, meant to curb evil. And what the Pharisees were doing, they were taking them out of that context and using them in actually their personal life and personal relationships. So what was meant to restrain and discourage, they were actually using to encourage revenge, to encourage a response that uh, the law was never encouraging anyone uh, to give. And here, again, the examples Jesus gives in verse 39, someone slaps you. Verse 40, someone sues you. Verse 41, someone needs your help for a mile. And verse 42, someone begs from you. But then also look at verse 39. We, we see that Jesus acknowledges that the person doing these things, whether this carries through all the examples or just some of them, is evil. He's not denying that. He's saying, do not resist the one that is evil. So, but Jesus is, is, is helping us see that the way that even we respond to evil exposes what we're most valuing. Even the way we respond to people that have actually done very real wrong to us exposes what in our life that we are valuing the most. And it's not that these things aren't important, but they should never be what is most important to us. Um, The Jesus way, the way of his disciples should respond, the heart of the Old Testament that the Pharisees should have known could be summed up in one word that Jesus is trying to communicate here, which is simply mercy, that he is wanting us to be merciful as our God is merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And here's what I think can happen here. We can get distracted by the seeming impossibility of following what Jesus is saying and miss considering what happens in our life when actually far less happens to us. Like we can just think, oh man, I could hardly ever do this or man, maybe I could do that. I'm not even sure. But we, we get so distracted by the hyperbolic statements that we miss that, man, much less happens to us in this life. Um, and, and we respond in ways that Jesus is uh, not calling us to. Uh, let, let's personalize. Um, well, let me say this real quick. Um, this is what Jesus is correcting. When anything like these examples happen in our life, we tend to justify turning inward and focusing on ourselves. And Jesus is correcting that. Let's just use two of these examples. Someone slaps you. So again, that's an extreme thing, uh, but being slapped just like then, just like now, is just a sign of disrespect. And Jesus says, you being respected is not what is most important. But how often when someone hints around, maybe kind of disrespecting us, what is our response? So we're far from being slapped in the face, 
we think someone potentially disrespected us. And what is our typical response? At the very least, our inner dialogue goes on like hyperspeed. And we're like, well, they don't even know. They, I mean, if they only, you know, they think this about me, what about that? You know, and that's at the least. And that's hard to cut that off. And often that comes out of our mouth to someone close by. Um, and then we start, you know what so-and-so probably thinks of me. They may have thought this one thing about me that really frustrates me. And, um, and then we continue to get them on our team. Or we even tend to, you know, we maybe have been disrespected. Maybe we have genuinely been disrespected. Maybe they said something. And so we build up a case of all the respectful things in our lives that prove that we are not disrespectful, either to tell ourselves, to tell other people, to get people on our side, to convince this person that's just disrespected us. Like, you didn't realize I, you know, do all these other things as well, or here's what I've done, or here's what I was, you know. This is, this is how, again, we haven't even been close to being slapped in the face, uh, but we've responded in a very different way than what Jesus is calling us to hear. What does that look like for you? What happens when you feel disrespected? Um, the reality is you might live the rest of your life without getting slapped. There's a good chance. But you will not live the rest of your life without getting disrespected. That will happen, especially if you have kids. Um, just be a common thing. Um, it will happen. And then what is your response? How do you deal with that? Um, I think about in all of these, Matthew and Jesus is alluding to what will happen later. I think of Matthew 26, 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him. When we think about what he's calling people to, and then we think about how that aligns with the very things he endured for us, for the times we're disrespected and respond sinfully, for the times people are slapped in the face and respond sinfully, for the disrespectful action of slapping people in the face, he endured that, that we could be forgiven. He endured disrespect and displayed mercy. And that's what he's calling us to. Uh, verse 40 gives us another example. Someone sues you for your tunic. And in that day, that was a very important piece of clothing. Um, and it was really just a threat on someone's material possessions, someone's financial reality. It was a very critical piece of what they needed to exist well in the world, a good representation of the material needs we have. And we do have material needs. But what Jesus is saying is your material needs, again, are never what is most important. How do you respond when income and provision are threatened? Do we button down the hatches? Is often generosity one of the first things to go? Um, and not even just generosity, but think about what Jesus is calling you, being generous to the very one that is not being generous to you, that's suing you. But yet again, look to Jesus who gave all of his earthly possessions, and again, even his own garments, what this is an allusion to, Matthew 27, 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Um, that he gave up all that he had, even his very earthly possessions. So a merciful response shows that we don't exalt the respect of men, 
We don't exalt our earthly possessions. We don't exalt even our personal plans. As people call us to go uh, one mile, we go two. Instead, we follow the way of a Savior who, when everything was taken from him, he didn't turn inward with self-preservation, but to his dying breath looked outward with unceasing mercy. And I do want to say applying these examples with wisdom is important. And here's what we do. Sometimes we use wisdom to just neuter the, the, the tough call here. We use wisdom to say, oh man, this is not as extreme as it needs to be. And we shouldn't do that. But we should also use wisdom as we apply these to our life, but just not in any way that it lessens the extreme call. We need to think about what it looks like to, for us to live our lives in the current situation and to apply these. And this is often not easy. That's why James tells us that we lack wisdom and we should ask for it. Uh, what it actually looks like to apply these, if we can just be like, I should give anybody all the money that they, that's not what Jesus is calling. It's not the only thing Jesus is calling us to, but this is a, th- a thing, to respond in a merciful way as, as we have been shown mercy. Um, and now we'll turn to the last example. And, and there is a culmination here, a culmination of extreme exhortation and a culmination of the importance of the calling. The, this one kind of sums up the New Testament. Um, verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so there's one main flaw that Jesus is trying to correct here. Uh, is that the Pharisees were taking the command that they knew to love their neighbor, but they were taking it to narrowly mean that any fellow Israelite. That's how they defined neighbor, was a fellow Israelite, which they took to mean they were free to hate anybody else, their enemies or anybody that wasn't uh, an Israelite, and Jesus is correcting that. Um, And another just unique thing about this example um, in Verse, verse 43, that, that phrase, hate your enemy, it's the only time when, in this cadence when Jesus says, in these different six examples, you've heard it said, he is always quoting the Old Testament. But that verse, you ha- hate your enemy, is nowhere in the Old Testament. So it's a, a unique thing that they had developed in their current day uh, that, that they could love their neighbor and hate their enemy. But Jesus is saying the right interpretation of neighbor actually includes our enemies. That we don't love our neighbor and hate our enemies. Our enemies are actually our neighbors. Uh, And he goes on to give two justifications for this loving our enemies and praying for those that persecute us. One, we see in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. When we show love to enemies and offer prayers for those persecuting us, we are proving that we are sons of our Father in heaven. Again, we should be thinking back to Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's what Matthew is alluding to here. We have a God that sent his son to be persecuted in order to make peace with his enemies. And we are those very enemies that he has made peace with. So reason one to do this is to show that we are rightly representing this God and that we are his very sons and daughters. And then the second reason we see in verse 46 and 47, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what 
more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Again, we can feel that Jesus is calling us to something greater here, this greater righteousness, this like the more than the unexpected. And the closing exhortation in, in this part of the sermon is simply to say that we should have no restraint with the love that we show. We don't restrain our love to the kind of people that we love. We shouldn't love just a certain kind of people. And we shouldn't love in just a certain kind of way. We shouldn't be like, oh, I'm just going to love this person so much. that As Christians, we should not have those boundaries. We don't get that kind of, we don't draw those kinds of lines. But Jesus is saying those that are your enemies and those that are persecuting you are the ones that you should show love for. And this really is a struggle within the church. Like one of the reasons we, we really struggle to, I think, share the gospel and evangelize at times, and I'm just as guilty of this, is because we're just uncomfortable being around people that aren't like us. And, and it's really hard to show them love because we've become so used to hanging out with people that are so similar to us. Even if there is some diversity, they're similar in what's most important, so it's just easy to be around them. And I'm not saying we shouldn't obviously enjoy community with one another and brothers and sisters in Christ. What a beautiful gift that is. Um, but, but this call is to love everyone. Like there's no one that we get to come in contact with and, oh, I don't have to love this person or I can only love them in this superficial kind of way. Now we're limited people, so we can't love everybody all the time in every deep way, but with the opportunities God puts before us, with real people that we come in contact with, how often do we close those opportunities off? Like, nah, this doesn't make sense. Or we just overlook it. Or we just run past it. As opposed to, this is, an, this is a neighbor. This is the very person Jesus is calling. And that's what the definition is. That's what we see, obviously, uh, when Jesus talks about who we should love later on in Matthew. Or in Luke. When we talked about loving our neighbor. The, the Samaritan. The, the one that he has put before us. That is our, the one we would be less, least likely to love but is before us is the neighbor that Jesus is calling us to love. And that's what he's calling us to here. And in doing that, we are representing the triune God of the universe. The father that so loved the world that sent his son. The son that displays this love by laying down his life. And the Holy Spirit that seals the message of this love on those that place their faith in Christ. This is, this is who we're imaging when we show this kind of love. And so if we think about all Jesus is calling us to here in these three examples, we're to live honestly with God. We're to show mercy like God. And out of the abundant love God has shown us, we are to love others, even people that hate us, that persecute us, that we would consider our very enemies. I want to close with 1 Peter, written by someone that heard this very sermon, walked with this preacher so closely, and he sums up Jesus' life in this way. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23, says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
And so Northbrook, let's live honest lives, showing mercy and love to all as we entrust our very lives to the one who judges justly. Let me pray for us in that way. Lord Jesus, I just confess that there's so much here, so much to consider, so much of your teaching to try to apply and think about. And and so Jesus, would we even in that just trust you? Trust your spirit to work in us and through us even right now. And in a sense, we don't have to try in our own effort to figure all of this out but we can entrust our our hearts and our minds and our souls even to you in this moment. Trust that you would, as we've gathered together, to hear from you, to learn from you, that you would reveal, that you would help us see what you're asking us to see. Whether it's honesty we've been struggling with, whether it's mercy we're struggling to show, whether it's love that we've restrained, or whether it's just really hard situations where we struggle to figure out the wisdom of applying this in in very real situations. God, would you just help us? Would you be with us? Um, Would you you help us rely on you and your spirit and rely on one another? We wouldn't keep this work to ourselves, but that we'd invite each other into it, trusting that, again, you put each other, uh, you put us into each other's lives for that very reason. Jesus, we thank you that your word's so good. Uh, and you call us to good, you mean joy for us, Um, and what a joy it is to obey and follow you and lay before you the very things and the very ways that we even don't do that, and the joy that comes from your grace and mercy washing over us time and time again. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.